0: So I actually have given a talk on this topic before here, uh, about three years ago. I don't know if anyone here was present for that talk. This talk is quite different, um, but I will go through uh, the first part of the presentation we'll discuss um, our views. There's an echo. The first part of the uh, talk will uh, give an overview of our views, why um, myself and my colleague, Dr. Kristen Fiala, we've been collaborating on this project for several years now, why we believe uh, conscientious objection is inappropriate uh, in healthcare. And then the next uh, part of the presentation will talk about what we've been actually doing to try and uh, shift uh, the uh, views out there on conscientious objection and try and actually stop it from from being an accepted practice in healthcare. So first of all, what is um, conscientious objection in uh, reproductive health care, that's what RH stands for. So we define it as the refusal by a healthcare professional to provide a legal medical service or treatment for which they would normally be responsible, they'd be expected to do it as part of their jobs. But based on their objection to the treatment for personal or religious reasons, they refuse to do it. So the very first law to explicitly allow um, CO, I call it CO for short, it's easier to say than conscientious objection, uh... was in the UK and this is uh... we're talking about like healthcare overall the very first law was targeted exactly only towards abortion so the 1967 abortion act in the UK and the US uh... followed shortly after that right after roe v wade they passed an amendment uh... allowing um... co uh... so today co is still exercised almost exclusively for abortion uh... and as well as other reproductive health care uh, like contraception and sterilization but primarily It's abortion. And it's only recently that uh, assisted dying has become legal in a few countries, and that's become an issue as well for for CO. And I also disagree with that for the same reasons in terms of doctors being able to refuse, at least they should refer. Um, So also, it's often been expanded in many countries to institutions like hosp- you know, giving hospitals the right to CO, but of course only individuals can have a conscience that they can exercise. So it's really wrong to do that because when you, when you expand it to a, do- a whole hospital, you're actually violating the consciences of the doctors within that hospital who are pro-choice and who want to do abortions to help their patients. They're being prohibited from, from doing that. So basically uh c o is like a backlash against legal abortion, and um we think that allowing c o actually undermines the law and weakens it, and it gives people an excuse to ignore or disobey the law because you know you're you're passing a law allowing abortion in in the u k as they did in nineteen sixty seven but at the same time you're giving people an exemption from the law, and uh, I'll talk a bit more about that later. So basically, CO originally was kind of based on, well, military CO, we're all uh, familiar with that. In the military, you, uh, soldiers might conscientiously object to killing, so they, they uh, object to the draft. Uh, but there's no real comparison. We say that you know, killing a living person in war, because you're being forced to um, by the draft, has nothing to do with stopping the development of a, you know, a tiny gestational sac, an embryo, or a fetus that only has the potential to become a living person. And also, I mean, it's important to say that abortion and contraception actually preserve the health and lives of women, and while those practicing CO are putting women's health and lives at risk. So it's quite the opposite from military CO. And just to illustrate that, that a bit further, here's a little table that we did up of comparisons between um, CO in the military and as exercised by healthcare professionals. So, soldiers are drafted into compulsory service, they have no choice. Healthcare professionals are applying for their position voluntarily, they're um, competing for training and jobs. You know, being a doctor is a very privileged position. Soldiers are powerless, they have to obey orders from their superiors. Uh, doctors are in a position of authority and trust, and they're treating patients who depend on them. Soldiers are conquering and killing for their country, while healthcare professionals are saving patients' lives, improving their health. And when soldiers claim the right of CO, um, they don't just uh, get off scot-free. They have to justify their stance, usually like appearing in front of a panel and being interrogated for hours. They have to uh, yeah, undergo this rigorous review process. They may be punished. Uh, some. People have gone to jail in the U.S., I I think, during the draft of the Vietnam War, or they have to complete an alternate service when they're uh, serving for the military. But When doctors claim the right to CO, they rarely even have to justify it. They're often protected explicitly by law or policy. Sometimes there's even laws making it against the law to discriminate against doctors who are discriminating against women. Uh, They rarely face any discipline. They retain their positions, and they're still being paid for them. And they may benefit because they're escaping abortion stigma, you know, being labeled an abortion provider. So they could be boosting their career and their reputation and even their salaries because then they can focus on more lucrative um, uh, pursuits in, in the medical field and abortion does not make very much money for doctors. So, I mean, basically, healthcare professionals are quite privileged. Soldiers are not. And uh, when you allow doctors to exercise uh, CO without any uh, consequence, it just gives them a license to abuse uh, their privilege and authority. So uh, I'm going to introduce a different term here because we actually don't like the term conscientious objection. We think it's a misnomer, and it's not even really what it is. Like it's been co-opted from the military, but as I've sh- shown you, it's really quite opposite. So it does not represent true freedom of conscience. Uh, instead, it's an unjustified veto of a patient's right to health care. Uh, we go so far as to call it negligent refusal to do the job you're hired and paid to do. You're imposing your own personal religious beliefs on another person, a more vulnerable person. It makes it an abuse of uh, uh, trust and authority. And there's an issue of class here as well. You know, The doctor's being privileged. You're using your class privilege to control others in a, in a lesser position. And basically, it's, it's harmful to patients, uh, exercising CO, both uh, psychologically and physically. I mean, it's on a continuum. Uh, harm is on a continuum. And um, even if the doctor refers promptly, you know, there's still a bit of a delay. The woman has to go to another doctor. Uh, and often uh, the harms are much worse than that. I think it's a violation of women's human rights and uh, because most reproductive health care is delivered to women, it it amounts to gender discrimination against women and also LGBTQ people as well. So we call it uh, dishonorable disobedience and um, I was just doing, uh, we, we published an initial article introducing that term back in 2014 and so I mean, I can't say the term is really caught on, but it's getting out there more and more. And if you do a Google search, I did did it this morning, there's 688 hits for the term disarmable disobedience now. So um, from this point onward, I'm going to call it, instead of CO, or conscientious objection, I'm going to call it DD. So when I say DD, I mean CO. (laughs) Hope that's not too confusing. So I wanted to draw a parallel between You've probably all heard of Mrs. Betty Bowers. I think she's fantastic. <laughs> uh, the really satirizes like this the sanctimonious um, Christian with uh, moral superiority. So we've all heard about the huge problems down in the states with uh, their passing laws, uh, basically making it legal for uh, if you're you know like Christian who operates a bakery, they want to be able to refuse to bake cakes for gay people, and these cases are in court and. Um, And, you know, Trump is also, I think, I don't know all the details now, but um, trying to overturn protections. Uh, I mean, if you go back to, like, I just want to draw a comparison here between those issues that are happening in the U.S. and laws against abortion and CO against abortion, DD, rather, because I kind of think that the use of DD for abortion, like, over the last few decades in the U.S., may have sort of set the, the, the groundwork, uh, laid the base for... Uh, it exp- it's expanded in the U.S. to a great degree. So, um, so it might be behind this current push to redefine religious freedom as the right to discriminate against others, basically. So it points out the... Uh, I mean, this cartoon is pointing out the hypocrisy between the two, but really, they're actually the same issue. Uh, it's the imposition of religious beliefs on others. So DD is like a, a boycott. You know, it's, a, it's an exemption from democratic, democratically decided laws, um, and here we're talking specifically about laws that are designed to protect the civil rights and health uh, of women and minorities in particular. So it's, it's, it's I think it's particularly egregious to be you know asking for exemptions to, to human rights laws. That's pretty dangerous. And uh, there's also this principle of public accommodation in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Basically um, said that you, you know you can't refuse. There's a you can't refuse to, like if you're a racist waiter in a restaurant or a business owner, you can't refuse to serve black people. It's against the law. But that's what they're they're trying to turn this around now in the U.S. and trying to make uh, get rid of public accommodation uh, principles for uh, LGBTQ minorities. And certainly they've been doing it for women already. So. <clears throat> Christian and I think that um, DD violates medical ethics, and these are some of the uh, ways I want to expand on a little bit. So they're choosing uh, by their own volition to work in a helping profession that fulfills a public trust, and in, in that way, it's kind of similar to you know being a lawyer. Like as a lawyer, you're uh, obligated to help clients, and you you may find your client did like, something really horrible, and you really disagree with what he did, but you're still your job is still to defend them, right? And um, so I think physicians have an obligation to help their patients, and it, and it doesn't really matter whether they don't like the patient or, uh, or if they're, you know, sexist or anti-gay or whatever, um, or if they, you know, for example, uh, think it's morally wrong to engage in extreme sports, so they're going to refuse to uh, help people who um, are injured in accidents. That's, that's ridiculous. So they're bound by laws on negligence and by fiduciary duty to their patients. They've got a duty to provide care to patients without discrimination. This is pretty much in all medical codes of ethics. Patients rely on them for essential health care. They can't go elsewhere. There's actually a monopoly on you know um, medicine. Um, doctors and other health care professionals deliver it, you know, unless you want to go to like, a naturopath or a homeopathic doctor. And we're not going to do that. So, in physicians, they know in advance when they're going to medical school, they know full well the kinds of care that they're going to be expected to provide in their practice. So, if you're going into primary care to be a family doctor, patients are going to frequently request contraception, maybe even uh, referrals for abortion. And if you're going to, into obstetrics gynecology, well, many of your patients are going to need help with unplanned pregnancies, and you have an obligation to help them, not turn them away. So DD clashes also with, like, the idea of patient-centered care and preventive care. Like, over the last few decades, our, our medicine, medical system has become more patient-directed, you know, like doctors are supposed to listen to their patients and respect their rights and so on, and uh, patients have a right to uh, any legal treatment within reason and uh, the right to refuse treatment and so on. So the whole idea of DD, it, it undermines standards of care and best practices in medicine, and it actually contradicts the entire purpose of medicine, which is to care for patients. So if you're refusing to treat, you're not caring for patients. <laughs> so we think it's unethical, uh, DD, because, um, I mean, you know the anti-choice people would say, well, what about the fetus? But really, we think that's uh, that so-called moral concern concern for zygotes and fetuses is really a false ethical framework and we have to focus on women it's hurting women and women are the patients the primary patients um, it's I think well demonstrated now contraception is basic essential life-saving health care that virtually all women of childbearing age uh, will use at some point in their lives so um, safe and legal abortion also saves women's lives and health because it prevents uh, death and injury from unsafe illegal abortions Oops echoes again. <laughs> um, there's been some new estimates in terms of the number of maternal deaths from unsafe abortion around the world, so there's some uncertainty, but it's somewhere between uh, 22,000 and 46,000 deaths uh, per year uh, of women from unsafe abortion, mostly in developing countries. So um, exercising DD, it's a, it's a reflection of stigma Against women's autonomy and sexuality and reproductive rights, you know, as I explained, the laws are all about the CO laws are all about abortion only, right? It was a reaction to the legalization of abortion, and I we see it really as a capitulation to anti-choice views, and there's no benefit to women or society. Um, It's like a vigilante action against the legality of abortion and contraception, and just a backdoor way to deny care despite the law, just to get around the law. And the harms done to women by uh, doctors exercising DD, um, disrespect, suffering, even death, some people have died, and I'll talk about that later, they're on the same continuum as the harms of criminalized abortion. So it's really not much different. So there's a couple of really bad assumptions that the exercise of um, DD rests on. And uh, a lot of people support CO in the field kind of based on these unquestioned assumptions. And the first one is, well, only a minority of, of health care professionals will actually exercise DD and there will be others available to perform the service as needed. So they just need to refer and everything will be fine. But actually DD can easily become very widespread, leaving women without access. And there's uh, some countries in the world, in particular Italy and South Africa, um, Spain, uh, many countries in South America, where a majority of doctors are objectors. And uh, it just shuts down access almost completely for many women, especially the more marginalized women. Also, abortion stigma itself makes DD an attractive solution. So like a lot of people who don't even have like a, you know, they're not sincerely anti-choice. They're just claiming to be an objector just for convenience, to avoid the stigma, to make sure that they're not hurting their reputation. And um, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's an unfair burden on providers who do conscientiously commit to provide abortions. Like uh, in Italy, um, depending on the region, like somewhere between 70 to 90 percent of all obstetricians refuse to provide abortions. And then the workload, like the, the doctors who do provide abortions, that ends up that that's about all that they, they can do and they're overworked and they're very um, stigmatized as well, including by their fellow doctors. So the other main assumption that people make was, um, oh, we'll just just pass this law regulating the CO, we're going to require doctors to refer, everything will be great. But the problem with that is, um, like the assumption is that objectors will limit their exercise of DD as required by a law or policy. But many objectors will refuse to even make referrals They won't even provide accurate information. I mean, this is often in a lot of policies and laws, that you have to provide accurate information. Well, what does that even mean for an anti-choice doctor? An anti-choice doctor thinks accurate information is telling a woman that abortion causes breast cancer. So it's all pretty relative. And uh, the other aspect is, oh, they're supposed to provide care in an emergency. So if there's an emergency, uh, urgent care, there's no other doctor around, well, they have to do the abortion. Uh, In fact, uh, some objectors will not only disrespect, mistreat women, refuse to refer, they'll even let them die. And it's also a, a contradiction in terms, like you know, allowing CEO up to a point and then saying, okay, now you have to do an abortion. Like, you can't pretend to respect doctor's conscience by drawing a line at which they are required to violate it, and it, it doesn't work. Also, uh, DD, it's usually unregulated, unmonitored by uh, you know, professional bodies, by the government. The requirements for DD, they're routinely ignored or abused with impunity. I mean, how do you even um, control it? So, there's widespread abuse where they, where they try to regulate it. <coughs> so, we think it can be successfully stopped. Um, and it's a huge challenge. We have a long ways to go, but uh, I'm encouraged by some recent progress. <clears throat> and and I thought a lot about ways of how it can be done. And uh, obviously, it's not going to change overnight. But healthcare professionals can be held more accountable. So uh, for starters, um, I mean, the long-term goal, I think, for uh, Christian and I is just to see conscientious objection just be gradually reduced over time uh, until the point where there's so few objectors in any particular country that it's feasible to just ban it. Um, It's it's not going to create an outcry or a problem then. So um, if you start out by uh, actually screening medical students at the point of entry into medical school and if they're going to be objectors, uh, against abortion, for example, they shouldn't be even allowed to enter the ob specialty. Existing objectors, uh, they can be assisted uh, to move to another field. Uh, even They can even be recompensed financially. Um, so we're not talking about like forcing doctors to do abortions, that's a red herring. Um, you, first of all, you can't force a truly anti-choice doctor to do an abortion. Uh, but the other thing that we've also recognized too is that there are, there are a percentage of objectors who or just kind of doing it in an uninformed way, and if you uh, give them some um, education or exposure to patients to that, who need abortion, uh, there's uh, lots of things in, in, in continuing education in medicine, you know, called values clarification, like go through ethics uh, workshops and things like that. And so some doctors can change their mind and, and start thinking, oh yes, okay, I understand now. I need to why I need to provide abortions. So you can. Con- convert, so to speak, a number of doctors, uh, which is great, and we should do that as much as possible, but it's not going to work for everyone. There's always going to be a a really significant number. I don't, I hate to hazard a guess, but I don't know, at least a third to half, maybe more of doctors who you're just never, ever going to convert. They're always going to remain objectors. Um, So if they, if existing objectors are not willing to sort of move to another field or another area where their objection won't be a problem then we need to step up enforcement and monitoring and enforcement procedures and make sure, like, you know, like, me- register them and uh, uh, monitor them, uh, maybe have them submit reports or something on their refusals. Uh, maybe, uh, like, for example, they shouldn't be allowed to work alone in a clinic. They need to have another doctor there who's, who can do referrals or whatnot. There needs to be mechanisms in place to ensure that women can, can um, provide uh, be provided the service. And even things like, you know, maybe... Um, Maybe paying doctors less, for example, or or allowing hospitals to um, um, have pri- hi- priority hiring of uh, non-objectors, things like that. In other words, you're just dis- discouraging and putting in place uh, in- disincentives to object. So you're not stopping them from objecting, but you're just making it harder. And then over time, hopefully, that would um, uh, lower the number of objectors. And I think the key support um, uh, for doing that, for being able to lower the number of objectors in the country, is the you know, strong support for women's rights and equality, because um, if there's a strong commitment to secularism and gender equality in the country, it's almost like a no-brainer, of course you're not going to allow CO, or it's unnecessary, it's unacceptable, um, because as we've seen, DD is correlated with abortion stigma, conservatism, religious dogmatism, especially the Catholic Church, and lower status for women. So we shouldn't try to uh, accommodate this ongoing oppression and stigmatization of women under the guise of conscience. So there is three countries, and Christian and I have uh, written an article about this with uh, three co-authors, one from each of the countries, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland. They don't allow um, DD. And so they've proven that it's it's possible to do so. And there's no um, uh, harmful consequences. They just simply redirect uh, possible objectors into other uh, areas. And there's not that many objectors anyway. In fact, most of the objectors they do have are actually immigrants from uh, other countries in Europe. So uh, it really goes to show that, you know, when you're raised in a sort of gender equality culture, you know, it's not even going to be an issue anymore, this issue of CO. Uh, and also, I think just it's, a, it's really a good thing to disallow DD because that aligns with the global advancement of human rights, and women's rights are human rights. Um, before I go on to there, I just wanted to mention that uh, one of the objections we often get is, uh, well, you need to balance, you know, a doctor's rights of conscience with patient's right to, to treatment. And um, and this is the thing we've come across over and over and over again. Like, when I say when we're trying to stop it, um, we're, not, we're not fighting the anti-choice. We're fighting our own colleagues, uh, other doctors in the field who are trying to protect their, their, right to, uh, their right to CO. And people seem to have this assumption, you know, the assumptions that I talked about, you know, that the right to conscience is something very important, and we need to respect it, of course, and uh, they're just assuming, they don't question it. Like, of all the stuff I've ever read, there's no real rationale for, you know, for respecting the right to conscience other than, oh, it's a, you know, it's a United Nations, it's a human, human right, and the United Nations, so on. But you, you you can't, there's all these qualifiers, like as I talked about, you know, when you're going into a public health care and helping the public, the public accommodation principle, and you can't be discriminating against people, so... Any right can be justifiably limited to protect the rights of other people, and this is one of those cases. And um, so there's organizations and professionals that uh, support DD, and they often confidently state that providers have a right to conscience, that patients have a right to health care. But, you know, I always point out that that is actually a contradiction in terms, because if you're giving providers a right to refuse treatment, the patient is not getting treatment. <laughs> so it's it's So which is it? Um, because we keep pointing out these things are incompatible. Um, and just giving doctors this right to refuse is uh, violates the fundamental values and policies of the, of the the very medical organizations that espouse Co. And all their noble talk about, you know, a physicians' commitment to patient care and interests, you know, evidence-based medicine, comprehensive care, and so on and so on. But as soon as you allow DED, then healthcare is no longer comprehensive. It's no longer based on science and evidence. It's no longer in the patient's best interests, and doctors are no longer committed to any of the above. So once we allow a doctor to bring their religious beliefs into their medical practice, we can't stop the ex- even the expansion or abuse of, of DD because, because you can't really question the, the doctor's beliefs or how sincere they are. We just have to accept it. Like a lot of people say, well, we just have to make sure the doctor is sincere in their belief. Well, how do you do that? I mean, you can't, um, you can't put religious beliefs on a... On a you can't subject them to tests of evidence, you know, like, if someone says, I, I really, really believe, you know, that uh, uh, that Mary was a virgin, or you know, whatever, you have to just accept that belief, because beliefs are irrational. And once you allow the, uh, the imposition of religious beliefs into medical care, how can you stop it? They just want to expand it more and more and more. So, uh, that's my colleague, Dr. Kristen Fiala. So, As I said, we've been working on this for several years now, and uh, I think what our goals are is we're trying to shift the terms of the debate and just raise awareness. Because when we first started uh, doing this, there wasn't that much recognition about. It was just the basic assumption that, of course, we have to allow CO. It's it's a good thing, and yeah, Maybe there are some harms to patients, but we'll just sort of uh, require doctors to refer. Everything will be all right. So we're trying to change this uh, underlying assumption that CO should be respected and valued. we want to change that so that people recognize that it's actually inappropriate and unethical uh, in healthcare. So we're using evidence-based arguments against DD, all the things that I've shown you, and lots and lots of actual cases of women harmed by, by it, how it's abused, uh, and then encouraging measures to uh, reduce uh, the exercise of DD and the number of objectors with the aim of eventually banning it. So, we've been do, engaging in a lot of just uh, talking to colleagues, you know, trying to persuade them, discussions and debates, often emails, for example. And, uh, like, one thing I've tried to do, it's its hard because there's quite a bit of literature out there, and there's actually been more and more literature on um, CO in the last few years, which is maybe a good thing. People are recognizing more and more of the harms that it's causing. Um, so, when an article is published that has, like, you know, those bad assumptions about uh CEO in it or otherwise supports uh, DD, uh, I'll often uh, look up the author, write them privately, give them our critiques, uh, and you know, sometimes they respond, sometimes they don't, I might have a little debate with them for a while, um, but just hoping that this will help shift their thinking, so maybe in their next article they might, you know, think about what we said a bit and uh, it might help. And um, so Sometimes we've been quite successful there, and there was one uh, prominent researcher with uh, IPass, which is a global NGO dedicated to ending preventable deaths and disabilities from unsafe abortion. So they're all over the world, and uh, this uh, researcher was in Latin America. We had an email debate going back and forth, because I uh, wrote her and critiqued her article, which made this assumption that, oh yes, CO is fine, and we can successfully regulate it. Yay. So uh, she came around, and uh, this is what she said to me. She said, uh, we were arguing about, um, you know, how you can't expect objectors to refer. They won't, you know, refer. They'll always never be satisfied. So she says, I see your point, Joyce. I agree. When you say that objectors will never be satisfied, they'll always object. After much thinking, I do think that what happens in reproductive health care is something that is named a CO opportunistically, but in fact, is not. This is why I'm now saying that this is a false dilemma, health providers' right to CO versus women's human rights. And as I mentioned, in Latin America, it's particularly bad. That little map shows the uh, laws about abortion. In many countries, it's uh, completely prohibited uh, or just allowed to preserve health or maybe on socioeconomic grounds. But there's a lot of objectors in these countries. So even where it's allowed legally, women may may not be able to access it because of DD. So we have a website. It's called... uh, conscientious-objection.info and we will use that term because it's the most widely under- understood and known term. So um, the left side shows the, some of the elements on the website and uh, a lot of it is just kind of uh, summarizes some parts of our articles. And we've uh, Managed to publish quite a list of publications. The one on the top is our first one from 2014, where we first coined that term, dishonorable disobedience. <clears throat> and there's actually a list of um, 12. Uh, about half of them have been published in uh, scientific journals. So, which is uh, great. I'm really happy about that because I don't even have a university degree and here I am publishing <laughs> in scientific journals. Yay. Um, although I sometimes notice that when people are citing us or talking about our articles, they'll sort of conveniently leave me out and just talk about Kristen, but whatever. <laughs> so, um, so we basically just been hammering home our points and honing our arguments and developing our arguments, responding to objectors. Um, so number four, for example, is a response to uh, various objections to our first paper that, that came out. There's a list of the rest of the papers. Um, some of these are on more uh, sort of n- news websites like Rabble or Rewire. One of them's on my blog, but uh, as I said, about half of them are on uh, scientific journals. Uh, six, oh, you kind of hard to see that one, but uh, Six is an um, uh, uh, article by me writing about a Canadian case uh, where, uh, you, I don't know if you heard about this, but a couple of years ago, uh, the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, passed a new policy amidst a huge public debate and lots of angry submissions from the anti-choice movement um, requiring doctors to make an effective referral if they object to, to care for personal or religious reasons. So um, there's two Christian medical associations and uh, I think five individual doctors who are suing the college because they refuse to make a referral. And, um, and actually, I've, I found references in the anti-choice press that these doctors and these groups, they're even against uh, having to... Part of the policy also requires them to provide urgent care when necessary if there's not another doctor to do it. So they're even against that. They don't want to provide emergency care. So it goes back to my claim, or not my claim, the, the, idea, the, um, the fact that some doctors will just let women die. They don't, they don't care. Um, Article 8 is our article about uh, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland, showing that um, uh, it can work to ban it. It's funny, when I first, the very first draft of that article, I just facetiously threw that title on, yes, we can, and it just kind of stuck all the way through and got published that way. So we've also been presenting at various conferences and symposiums around the world um, at many different venues, FIGO is the International Federation of Gynecologists and Obstetricians. Uh, Christian is presented there on um, CO. Uh, FIAPAC, which is uh, a French name, the English translation is International Federation of Professional Abortion and Contraception Associates. So they have conferences every two years, and I've been to many of those conferences, and there's usually um, at least one session on CO by one or both of us, um, because Christian is... um, on the board, and he's a past president of FIAPAC, so he's a little bit of an in there. And then uh, this is me talking at the International Congress on Women's Health and Unsafe Abortion in Thailand uh, last January 2016. And then uh, we've also presented together at the European Society of Contraception in uh, Lisbon, Portugal, and more uh, venues as well. Um, I I don't even know all the ones that Christian has done on his own. And of course, I'm doing some of my own, like here today, and to other groups as well. So, there was a, an amazing event in Montevideo, Uruguay, just this past August. It was the first international convention on conscientious objection. So, there's been regional meetings before, but never an international conference just on this topic. So, they invited 50 experts from 20 countries, including policymakers, academics, health professionals, legal experts, and feminist activists. Unfortunately, I did not get an invitation. Kristen did. That's Kristen there. He's the the bald guy wearing headphones and the light-colored jacket. And um, I tried to finagle an invitation. I really, really tried. And Kristen sort of intervened for me as well, but unfortunately, it didn't happen. But anyway, he went down there by himself, and um, I helped him and fed him all kinds of information and advice about what to say in each session. And it went really well. Um, So reports about the meeting afterwards, um, featured our point of view quite prominently and uh, so I think he did a great job at putting our views on the table. Of course some people there already agreed with our point of view, um, but uh, others didn't. But by the end of the meeting, uh, at least according to him, he said that everyone except a couple people from Catholics for Choice were agreeing with our views. So Catholics for Choice is one of the, I mean they're, they're a great organization, they're, they're, they're pro-choice and they fight for um, uh, liberal values but on this issue, they're pretty, uh, pretty uh, stubborn and uh, committed to uh, protecting doctors' right to DD, and uh, we don't really understand it. I've actually had debates with um, John O'Brien, uh, with uh, who's the head of K- uh, uh, Catholics for Choice, and he's, um, you know, it's like it, it's like arguing with a religious believer. It's, it is, yeah. The, you can't reach them. It's really frustrating and i mean like i think they, they don't even read our articles you know it's like i don't know they're afraid of the cognitive dissonance or something i don't know um there was one other uh, ca- there's only one canadian at that meeting who was invited and he's also an interesting guy uh, dr udo schuklink not a medical doctor he's a professor of bioethics at queens university in kingston and i've never actually met the guy but we've emailed before and he's uh, he's been out there for many years um, um basically saying that, uh, you know, CO is wrong, shouldn't be allowed in healthcare at all, any healthcare. care. And, uh, but his arguments are from a bioethical, philosophical framework. And, um, whereas we've been publishing more in the medical journal, so it's a little bit different. But he's kind of going on claiming, well, I've already made all these arguments, and I started all this, and <laughs> maybe it's true. So, this uh, comes from the organizer's statement after the conference, which was, you know, widely published. And um, I remember, this is an international conference. The experts have concluded that their refusal to provide legal abortion services is hurting women all over the world and must be tackled. The group highlighted that conscientious objection in relation to health services is not supported by international human rights frameworks. Like it's not in any you know, law or a human rights code. The practice is sometimes allowed by national law but it increasingly stigmatizes a fundamental health service and pushes women to carry a risky or unintended pregnancy to term. The participants agreed to individually further legal ethical health and policy objectives that can mitigate the damaging effects of conscientious objection and reduce the immense burden on women who seek a legal professional service that must be rendered without prejudice. So I mean they didn't come right out and say that you know we have to ban it. Uh, but they did come out with these very, very strong statements, you know, um, highlighting all the harms and how it needs to be stopped. And there was nothing about, you know, CO being a right or a good thing or anything like that. So we were very happy with that. So uh, a big part of our webpage, page, um, the conscientious-objection.info page, hope you will visit it, is we have a whole page of victims of CO. Uh, DD. So these are defined as women who die or suffer serious injury or injustice because of being refused a legal abortion. So right now there's 44 uh, victims and counting and actually have a I've been doing this work and I actually have like three or four more stories I still need to add to the site so there's uh, close to 50 and um, and I just want to stress I made that maybe that didn't sound like a lot these are only cases where uh, a woman dies and it hits the papers, or a woman or her family sues and it hits the papers. So only cases that actually get media coverage. And so I think for every story we hear about in the news, there's, oh, at least maybe hundreds more that we never hear about. So it's really on the tip of the iceberg. And uh, you might notice at the very bottom, uh, there's a Sort of a mishmash of stories of 17 women uh, from the USA. So the US is one of the worst offenders in terms of harming women from the exercise of DD. And a few other more detailed stories from the US up there. So I think there's uh, like almost half of them are from the US, many from Latin America. And a lot of these we found by, um, like we did English language searches, but we decided to do uh, foreign language searches as well. So we captured stories that maybe weren't in the English language press. And so uh, it was hard to find people to help with that. I ended up doing a lot of work in Google Translate, but I, uh, I found a lot of the stories from Latin America and Spain, and it was really quite... Um, you know, it's actually heartbreaking to do that project, to be reading the stories. It was just... It was really... It was really bad. Upsetting. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about these two in particular. Um, oh, first of all, we're doing a documentary film. Uh, Christian Fiala is actually, like, in addition to being an abortion provider, uh, he's a PhD researcher. Um, at the uh, Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. He's a founder and um, uh, operator of a a world-renowned award-winning museum called the Museum of Contraception and Abortion in Vienna. And he does documentary films. So he's this really um, amazing, high, uh, accomplishing individual. Um, So he's already done two films, and this is his third. Uh, These are like smaller independent films that will be shown at film festivals and things like that, so not for general release, but they've been getting, his previous films have been getting very good reviews. So Christian is actually well known for this saying, it was quoted uh, actually in a journal that I picked this out of, Uh, you know how abortion laws often say, well, uh, you, you you can only have a legal abortion if your life is at risk. And same with something, you know, conscientious objection laws, like you, when you say oh, you have to provide an abortion in an emergency situation when the woman's life is at risk. Well, what does that even mean? Uh, it's very relative. How, do you des- how does the doctor decide when uh, the li- her life is at risk? And he nails it on the head. There's only one way to be sure a woman's life is at risk, that is after she dies. Because he's had experience with this, like in, he worked in Africa and you, know, you have a committee of doctors arguing about whether, you know, uh, this woman's at risk of dying. And while everyone's arguing, nothing gets done, and then she dies. So uh, the woman on the left, Savita Halapanavar, you may have heard of her is a very famous case. She died in Ireland uh, five years ago now, um, almost exactly. And... Um, uh, what happened was, uh, this is a bit of a tricky case. I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, hopefully, I have time here. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, so what, what we're doing with the film is we're interviewing um, women and their families, their lawyers, other people who are involved in the cases. So, we've done ex- uh, extensive interviews with um, Valentina's family in Italy and her lawyer. And uh, I've actually been working on the film as well. And I've just finished helping set up a bunch of interviews with people involved in uh, Savita's care and death. So, that's been a very interesting project to work on and the interviews will be taking place actually in a few days. Um, so what happened with Savita is that um, Irish law, there is, at the time that she died, Irish law basically said that abortion is illegal if there's a real and imminent risk to the woman's life or in cases of where the woman is, thre- is uh, at risk of suicide. So. Uh, so a lot of people are saying, like, we've had some objections to including Savita on our list, because people are saying, well, she didn't die because of COs, because of the Irish law. But we actually think otherwise, because, I mean, it, it was technically legal for the doctor to provide her an abortion. What happened was she was miscarrying at 17 weeks. Her membranes ruptured, um, which kind of means like you, you know, your water breaks, right, uh, early. And uh, of course, there's no chance at that point for the fetus to survive. It's a doomed pregnancy. No hope. Um, So the normal standard of care for pretty much any hospital in the world, immediate termination. Why? Because there's a very um, strong risk of infection, and particularly sepsis, which is a very rapid and life-threatening infection that can kill within hours. And the standard of care for sepsis in general across the world is you prevent it. You don't let it happen, you prevent it. But uh, no, what happened with Savita is the doctor, her doctor took a very conservative view of the law, And um, basically um, waited, refused. She she and her husband asked repeatedly for a termination. She was refused. Uh, The doctor said, uh, although later denied, but the doctor said, this is a Catholic country. We don't do that here. Um, Also cited the law. And, um, you know, she was a Hindu uh, immigrant from India, along with her husband. Uh, Well-educated, professional. She was a dentist and uh, it was her first child, very much a wanted pregnancy. So anyway, um, she finally started to get sick. She already had signs of infection, like, uh, fairly early on, uh, just shortly after she was admitted to the hospital. But what we found, and I recently, like, really researched the case, I read a book about it, and there was a, just a litany of errors in her case, like, uh, the, the The inquest or the public inquiry put it down, they called it medical misadventure because there were so many mistakes in her care uh, by uh, multiple healthcare personnel, but many of them were made by her doctor. And I looked at all these mistakes and I thought, like, how is this even possible? How can mistakes of this magnitude be made? And we're talking about, like, she didn't monitor Savita properly, like, uh, delays in her care, like missing obvious signs of infection. Another doctor, even a midwife, had, had earlier um, suspected that she was septic, you know, had sepsis, and but her own doctor didn't even see those signs. And I thought, well, how is that possible? And I kind of thought, you know, maybe, you know, she's, she claimed that she was only just obeying the law, right? That's how, what she testified later at the inquest. But was she really, or what, did her personal beliefs have something to do with it? And when I was setting up the interviews, there was a friend um, uh, who happened to be a doctor, a friend of... Um, Savita and her husband Praveen. He was at the hospital when she died, and just helping Praveen. And I uh, helped them afterwards in the next few days. And uh, we have an interview set up with him for our documentary. And he said, uh, he said, I-, I think the doctor was acting on her religious beliefs. You know, it was lo- it was more than just co. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how those interviews uh, happen. Uh, but we um, um, we do think that there is something there that needs to be uncovered, and a lot of people like. Praveen the, the widow he, he was really brave he he went to the media, um, he actually enlisted the help of a pro choice group in Ireland that went to the media, um, and his basic question throughout was why, why did this happen you know like in a modern country like Ireland, you know my wife died from this medical negligence why and, but all he ever got were, well, you know, this happened at such and such a time, we checked her blood, blah, blah, So, all the technicalities and the mistakes were kind of documented, but there was never an answer to the question of why. And that's what he wanted to know. So hopefully our documentary will help uncover a bit of that. Unfortunately, we couldn't get him to uh, agree to be interviewed, but he lives in California now. Oh, he did, uh, Praveen, the, the widow, widower, he sued the hospital and Savita's doctor afterwards. Uh, uh, The settlement was not made public, but reportedly he got a a six-figure settlement, uh, possibly almost as close, uh, almost 1 million euros. So um, I think that's really good. But I I still think he would never got the answer to his question why she died. So the next case I want to talk about a little bit is uh, Valentina Meluso from Italy. very, very similar, eerily similar to what happened to Savita. Now, in Valentina's case, it was really a, quite a clear case of uh, conscientious objection. The doctor said he was an objector. Uh, what happened was she uh, was carrying twins, uh, gained a much-wanted pregnancy. She actually had um, them implanted by um, that process. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and, um, but uh, again, uh, 19 weeks, she started miscarrying. Went to the hospital. She was actually there for almost two weeks before she started to show signs of infection. Of course, you know doctors were refusing to terminate uh, one of the fetuses uh died in uter- utero while she was in the hospital. They refused to remove it or remove the other fetus because it still had a heartbeat and um so of course that's like uh, very ripe grounds for infection right there and um she uh it was really quite horrible she um she uh, sepsis, is, uh, as I said, it's a very rapid and life-threatening infection. She started to get really sick, and uh, it, it actually just eats up your organs. It's, it's, it's horrible, and it's extremely painful. Uh, she was in agony uh, for the last uh, day of her life, um, and the doctors wouldn't do anything for her. They said they just dismissed her pain as labor pains. They were very disrespectful to her. They could have sent in for another doctor to do the termination, but they didn't. Um, her parents were there with her. They were just horrified, begging, begging them to please do a termination and help them, give them her some pain relief at least. They wouldn't. Uh, she was in such pain, so exhausted that she was begging for to be put to sleep after a while. Um, and finally, um, finally, the fetus, the other fetus, died, and then they did the termination. But by then, it was too late, and she died a few hours later. So uh, again, the family is uh, suing. And uh, the, report, the hospital put out a, just a horrible report, a very a quick kind of whitewashing report afterwards, claiming it wasn't CO, and they did the same thing as in the Savida case. It was very similar. Like, they just sort of documented all of the things that happened minute by minute, hour by hour, and, oh, yeah, mistakes were made, you know. And so really it was just, like, the cause of the death was lack of communication and, you know, we forgot to check her, or, you know, all this uh, litany of errors, but never admitting that they should have immediately performed the termination as soon as she arrived at the hospital two weeks previously. Uh, or at least, you know, the the day before she got really sick. So it's just uh, very, very um, upsetting. And on that list of victims that I showed you, um, not too many of the women had died, I think about four or five on that list, but some others um, suffered uh, really serious injustices or mistreatment, and I wanted to give you an example of this one. I can't really see it very well, but it says... um, she survived, this is Paula from Spain, Paula is not her real name, and she said that what the doctors did almost cost her her life. So what happened was, and she, this made the news because she sued them and she got a settlement of 270,000 euros. So the hospital uh, in Spain, abortion is legal, um, and um, it's supposed to be provided in public hospitals or accredited facilities. In practice, though, it's um, generally 90% of women end up being referred to private clinics. So private clinics take the, 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 the main load of uh, abortion patients. In some regions of Spain, you can't get an abortion at a public hospital at all. They just refer. And this also causes women delays, and um, often they have to drive a long distance. And that's kind of what happened to Paula here. So she uh, learned that she was carrying, uh, her fetus had a fatal anomaly, Seven months into the pregnancy, and it took that long because there were some errors uh, during her antenat- antenatal diagnosis. And I don't know exactly what, what happened there, but I just wanted to mention the possibility that, you know, doctors, anti choice doctors, don't like doing these um, prenatal diagnoses in case of fetal anomaly because they're worried that the woman might go for an abortion. So they will delay or refuse tests and things like that. So I'm wondering if something like that happened here. <coughs> So she couldn't find anyone to terminate the pregnancy in her hometown or any nearby public hospital. Eventually the Public uh, Health Service um, said okay we need to respect you know the doctor's right to objection on moral grounds but we'll pay for the termination at a private clinic in Madrid. So by this time she was 32 weeks pregnant. The trip was 570 kilometers away. She went with, by car with her partner so the hospital didn't even take her in an ambulance. She'd already been having some pains uh, for days, and the hospital told her it was just wind, they just dismissed it. And in fact, the pain uh, was due to an irregularity in her uterus, and, which was affected by the pregnancy. So by the time she arrived at the clinic in Madrid, she was bleeding heavily and lost a lot of blood, had to be transferred to the hospital for an emergency caesarean section uh, to remove the fetus, which died almost immediately afterwards, and then they had to remove her uterus to stop the bleeding. And this is a very young woman, and she can't have any more kids and um, uh, there was reports like this happened a few years ago twenty twelve i think and uh and she's still like uh, it' had major psychological effects on her as well left her depressed for years and just it just it was really awful what they did to her so that's just um one example of many of the um stories on our site and you can see uh, see why I would get really upset when I was researching these stories. It was, uh, it was awful. So um, the last thing I want to mention in terms of what we're doing to try and stop the exercise of DD is uh, we both of us just got an invitation, Christian and I, to uh, give oral evidence at the UK Parliament. Yay! Um, So it's the 50th anniversary of the the UK Abortion Act that was passed in 67 and I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation that that act was the very first time that CO was codified in law by any uh, country. (coughs) So we're going to give oral evidence at a committee hearing, uh, the the all-party parliamentary group on population development and reproductive health, this is a long acronym that they use. Um, So basically we had made a written submission to them and they apparently they liked it so the submission was on CO and uh, how uh, UK as the um, the initial country to put CO into law is in a fantastic opportunity to now uh, play a leading role and set an example for the world by you know repealing the uh, CO clause in their law although actually what we also want them to do preferably is repeal the entire law because they don't need um, a law on abortion at all like we You know, Canada doesn't have a law against abortion, and we encourage countries to follow our example. And actually, I actually have testified at the UK Parliament before, oddly enough, in 2008, on the topic of Canada having no law. I think at the time, the UK was, uh, they go through these perennial debates every few years of trying to reduce the time limit for abortion. So it was around that. And um, so I've asked permission this time to also briefly talk about why they should repeal the law and why no law is necessary based on Canada's example. So um overall we're very uh, encouraged by it seems like we're making progress and sh- we are shifting the framework to some extent on um, CO and its acceptability you know there's still some people in our movement or a- activist colleagues and doctors who are we're still kind of stubbornly uh, they're stubbornly arguing with us still or not really dealing with our arguments but we're working on them and um so I think I'm just very encouraged and excited that we have been making this progress. And it feels good as an activist to be able to uh, see that we're making a difference and kind of impacting the public debate on this issue. So and that's it. And that kind of sums up, you know, abortion is health care. Health care is a right. You know, deliver that health care. Stop refusing. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you.